Okay, hello, hello, testing, hello. All right, for those of you who are in the sanctuary, welcome back. Uh, we'll get you to grab your seats, please. And uh, for those of you at home, welcome, uh, welcome. My name's Kingsley, I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Grace Toronto Church. Welcome. At the time when I was transitioning into a full-time ministry, I was serving as a lay leader in another church. And uh, lo long story short, uh, I had gotten an offer to do my ministry training with this old church but turning them down and instead asking them to partner with me in my transition here at Grace Toronto, well, long story short, feelings got hurt. As a result of a misunderstanding, one elder felt slighted and disrespected. He accused me of insincerity and deceit. And assuming the worst in me and not giving me a chance to explain myself, what was supposed to be the start of an exciting adventure, an opportunity for gospel partnership, turned into a season of sorrow, doubt, dismay, and pain. It took about a year and a half before we could reconcile. It actually happened in the course of the pandemic. It took a pandemic and a year and a half to happen before the elder who was most offended wanted to meet with me. What was it that got him to come to me? Second Corinthians chapters one, verse 24. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Far from being a relic of the past, Second Corinthians chapters 1, verse 12 to 2, verse 4, powerfully teaches us about the dynamics of gospel leadership. For the one in leadership and under leadership, it is a goldmine of truth that awaits us. And so as I invite my lovely wife, Hannah, to come on up and read the scriptures for us, I encourage you to open your Bibles, whether it's on your phone or in your hard copy Bibles, to 2 Corinthians chapters 1, verse 12 to 2, verse 4. And as we read this word, Hannah. The scripture reading for today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 to 2, verse 4. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, 
but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I, I've, uh, the one whom I have pained? And as I, I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray for this time where we are going to try to understand your word and what you're saying to us as a people today. And God, I ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to perceive. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. 15,000, one, five, three zeros. According to one Harvard study, publishing houses put out 15,000 books on leadership every year. If you consider the self-published books, the self-published works, that number jumps to the millions, 1.6 to be exact. 1.6 million books, that's a lot. With so many supposed experts in the field, you can't help but wonder then, why? Why do we have so many problems with leadership over and over and over again? It's news of one failed leader after another. Immorality, deceit, deception, incompetence, insincerity, insensitivity, passive aggressiveness, overt aggressiveness, presumptuousness, dodginess, self-centeredness, dominance, flakiness. I'm talking inside the church and outside of the church, in our offices and in our schools, in our news and in our podcasts. If it's not the fall of one leader, it's the rise and fall of one leader. Why is that? Our passage today tells us why. Operating on the wisdom of the world, we've been turning primarily to the wrong books and the wrong leaders for our main source of wisdom. Turning us to God's word, Paul tells us where to go. He tells us to go to God. In revealing to us the dynamics of gospel leadership, Paul shows us God's pattern for gospel leadership and God's purpose for gospel leadership. These are our two points today. For those of us in leadership, and those of us under leadership. Second Corinthians teaches us God's pattern for gospel leadership and God's purpose for God's gospel leadership. Let's look at the first one, uh, gospel pattern, God's pattern. Uh, responding to accusations of being domineering, self-serving, fickle, duplicit, and insincere, Paul in verses five, uh, 12 to 22 and chapter two, verse four, not only defends his integrity as a gospel leader, but in doing so reveals to us God's pattern for leadership. Look with me to verse 15 and 17. Here we read that Paul had originally set some plans, but then changed those plans, which led to some quick assumptions and some aggressive accusations. Verse 15 to 17. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and to have, send you on, uh, to, to have you send me on my way to Judea. Verse 17, was I vacillating when I want to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? We see here Paul's made his plans, and now there's accusations, accusations of vacillating. 
of being fickle. People were upset. Why? Because Paul said he was going to come, and people were like, no, you didn't come, Paul. You said you were going to visit, and then you blew us off, just like every other leader who says they'll make time for us. And then they just blow us off for their own selfish reason, their own self-serving way. They interpreted this as though Paul was not for them, that Paul was against them, that he didn't really care, and he didn't really love them. At first, when we're reading this and you're hearing this, you're probably thinking, what's the big deal? Paul changed his plans. This isn't like some post-Sunday brunch event that he changed last minute. No, this is a big deal. And we actually get this. In, in the news recently, our prime minister got burned for his travel plans during the first national day of truth and reconciliation. As one residential school survivor put it, his words didn't match his actions. And in Corinth, this is their issue with Paul as a leader. His words didn't match his actions. How do you think Paul responded to his accusations? Did he shake his head, dismiss them? Did he get explosively angry at the Corinth church, the church in Corinthian? Does he pack his bags and leave for the next church across the city? No. He doesn't do that. If we look at the text, he digs down deep and he actually engages the church. He writes a loving letter to clarify the truth and to pursue reconciliation. Look at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, how we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. That's the truth part. Jump to chapter 2, verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love, that's the second part, that I have for you. How did he respond? With truth and love. Leaning in with love, Paul pursues reconciliation. And with a heavy heart and tear-filled eyes, he writes and pursues the people that coldly accused him. Verse 12's mention of a conscience and his clear conscience is actually really important. Here, Paul has soberly reflected on the accusations, and only after finding them to be groundless does he speak. He's not quick to defend. This gives us a snapshot into what gospel leadership's pattern is like. They lean in in love. They pursue truth in reconciliation and are humble to consider criticism. Wouldn't it be amazing if our leaders were like this? I mean, instead of dismissing us, exploding at us, or passively retaliating at us, they would lean in with love and graciously respond. As we keep reading in verse 12, we see Paul talk about his behavior. He says he behaved with simplicity and godly sincerity. Commentators agree that when Paul says he acted with simplicity, he's saying he's behaved with a single-minded, wholehearted commitment to the people. Uh, no deception, no duplicity, no fickleness, no mi mixed motives, no, reason, no reasons for doubt. Sincerity refers to his absolute transparency as a leader. Uh, the, the Greek word is very fun. Uh, there's, a, there's an image here embedded into this compound Greek word as though something was laid out in the sun for judgment. In other words, this leader, he has no shady secrets, no skeletons in the closet. 
The word godly, the word godly between simplicity and sincerity, it's a small word, you might gloss over it. That word godly is especially important. Used as an adjective to show Paul's behavior patterned itself after God, Paul's saying, I'm not like the other leaders. I'm different from all those leaders. I'm not fickle, I'm not duplicit. I am like God in his truthfulness, in his integrity imitating, reflecting, and mirroring Christ in all his perfections. Gospel leaders, walk in a way that would make you think that you've just seen God. Think about that for a second. That's the standard that Paul is showing us. Gospel leaders would make you think that you just saw God. That's crazy. How does anyone do that, right? How does anybody live like that? Paul tells us, verse 12, and it's beautiful. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. He does it by the grace of God. See, before he became a Christian, Paul was a powerful and ruthless leader, religious leader, a dominating force in his community. He was the poster child for religious piety, doing whatever he wanted and whatever he needed to move up in the ranks. Paul had no problem using and abusing people to get his way. But all that changed when he came face to face with the resurrected Jesus one day. He was humbled by grace, transformed by Christ, and Paul all of a sudden became a new man, a new type of leader, a new kind of leader. He became a gospel leader Verse 22, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit as a guarantee. What he's doing here is he's summarizing the gospel in one long sentence. Paul tells us what happened to exactly. Believing in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, Paul was established in Christ and set free from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and the pleasures of sin. And pouring out his spirit on Paul, that's another way of saying anointing, God empowered Paul to live like Jesus and to guarantee the redemption of his soul. In the 70s and the 80s, automakers and politicians developed a philosophy of leadership that took businesses by storm. It was called the Messiah Leadership Discourse, or Messianic Discourse for short. Taking an interest in Jesus' effectiveness as a leader, philosophers and analysts began to ask, why was Jesus so effective? Why was he so effective in changing the world? Their conclusion, Jesus possessed a certain mix of charisma, morality, and mission. In their mind, Jesus had a vision and a mission for the world. He had values for people to follow, and he had the charisma to bring it all together. Vision, mission, and values. Have we heard that phrase somewhere before? Maybe in our workplaces? Organizations ate this philosophy up, thinking it would be enough just to ask, what would Jesus do? Leaders tried to build their empires on imitating Jesus alone. Up and up they thought they could go, and it worked. It worked, actually, for a certain, to a certain degree. At first, organizations noticed elevations in morale and promising growth. But in seeking to imitate Jesus' leadership without personally experiencing and encountering Jesus and receiving the transformative power of his spirit, what happened was that leadership started to go off the rails. 
As power grew, so did the abuse. As productivity increased, so did immorality. Copying the moral pattern of gospel leadership, but cutting out the gospel altogether, they created empty shells with no power, like cars without engines. They created empty tins that promised to take us everywhere, but in the end took us nowhere. If you think all you need to do is imitate Jesus without having a personal relationship with Jesus, you are wrong and you will fail. Why? Because buried deep in our hearts is a certain darkness, a darkness that keeps us from living the way that we want to live and living the way that we should live. In the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve out of the dust, he put them in positions of leadership. As vice regents of his eternal kingdom, God, in his mercy, made glorified dust the overseers of all his handiwork. Isn't that incredible for a second? Just think about that for a second. God put man over everything in his creation. But man, enticed by pride, bit off more than they could chew, literally. You read Genesis 2, they bit off more than they could chew, and they broke away from God's pattern of leadership by disobeying God. What resulted was a perpetual enslavement and an internal bent, a pattern that is bent towards self-service and self-preservation. Apart from God, we can try to be better, we can work really hard to be better, but it's only a matter of time before we fail and fall. What's staggering What's staggering is that instead of wiping us out, God, he gives us a second chance. Making a promise to Adam and Eve right after they screw up, he makes a promise to them and then a a promise to the descendants after them to send a redeemer. And he sends a promise to people even after them, to people like Abraham and women like Sarah, to people like Isaac, Jacob, and David, through prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. God promised to send one man, one seed, one son, one servant, one shepherd, one priest, one prophet, one king, who would lead us and redeem us from this pattern of sin. If you read the Old Testament, and I mean all of it, you will see time and time again God making promise after promise after promise to send one and only one Messiah to rescue us, deliver us, and redeem us. Leadership expert and best-selling author John Maxwell once wrote, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. Jesus, the yes and amen of the promises of God not only knows the way, has gone the way, and shows this way, but the scriptures say that he is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John chapter 14, verse 6. Paying the price for our sin and breaking the bonds that bind us, Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection raises us to newness of life so that we might be able to live a transformed life. We might be able to be a different people. We might be free to live like Christ. Leaders inside the church, outside the church, managers, supervisors, directors, executives, 
pastors, elders, deacons, worship leaders, staff members, small group leaders, youth leaders, worship leaders. I said that already. There's a lot of different positions out there. If you want to be a truly beautiful gospel leader and have a lasting impact in your community, not only do you need to live like Jesus, but you need to be transformed by Jesus. Skeptics, I want you to see that there is a world of difference between those who merely imitate Jesus and those who are animated by Jesus. Recently in the news, we have read of countless rise and falls of Christian leadership, people claiming to be followers of Jesus, people claiming to imitate Jesus. It's one thing to say that you live like Jesus. It's another to be empowered to live like Jesus. Many of these leaders claim to imitate Jesus, but I don't think they have been empowered by Jesus through an experience, a personal experience with him. There is a difference. Now, let's jump back to verse 17 to 20 real quick. If you have your Bibles, let's turn our attention there. I want to help you understand what's going on here because it reads a little wonky and a little confusing with all these yes and no's and you're like, what's going on here? That's the big web and tangle of this passage. In context, Paul's motives and integrity are being questioned, and specifically in verse 18, he responds by plainly affirming to the people that just as God is faithful, so he has to. He's like, I'm faithful. I have been faithful. Why? And then he goes into his argument, verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Now, What's helpful to understanding and unpacking this is actually knowing what the word yes translates into from the Greek. If you can say with me, the word is ne. Go ahead, you can say it. Ne. Great. That means yes. In Greek, not only does it mean yes, but it also means true. So he's saying it's true. Verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes, ne, in him. They are true in him. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to the glory of God. Amen in Greek also translate as true. When Jesus says truly, truly in the Gospels, he's saying amen, amen. Truly, truly. The church has affirmed that that the gospel message proclaimed by Paul is true and that he was reliable here. And Paul's using this somehow as his logic and argument for his faithfulness. Here's his flow of thought. If I was faithful with you here in the gospel proclamation which you all affirm is true, what makes you think I wouldn't be true here with my words? You trusted me here, but you won't trust me here? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. And this actually teaches us a very valuable lesson for those of us under leadership. That is, things aren't always as they seem. And as a result, we shouldn't be too quick to judge our leaders. Some commentators think that Paul is using his mention of the promises of God to deepen and to further this point. For example, when God promised to send a king who would come and set his captives free, the Jews thought that it was a physical liberation from the oppression of their time. But when Jesus came, he showed them it wasn't actually. It was a spiritual liberation. When the Jews read the promise of God, they thought God would come with the sword in hand. Jesus 
hanging on a cross to fulfill God's promises with nails in his hand showed that their expectations were wrong. Things weren't always as they seem, and time and time again, their expectations weren't met, but they were in Christ. Things didn't seem the way that they'd, they were supposed to, but God still was faithful. Therefore, we shouldn't judge too quickly. In Paul's case, he was genuinely sincere, and though it did not seem like it, he was actually motivated in an act of love. He says, it was to spare you that I didn't come. It was actually out of love, even though it didn't look like it. And this actually makes sense, too. In cases of conflict, sometimes it's wiser to give people space uh, to process the pain and grief of the moment before immediately seeking reconciliation. We still need to lean in, but there's wisdom in backing off to let people cool down before we come at them to reconcile. Paul here is showing us that we shouldn't be too quick to assume the worst in one another. And uh, a couple of years ago, I actually made this mistake with a fellow seminary student. Uh, I screwed up big time. Grace Toronto Church, in helping me with my seminary training, sent me over to Florida to take a class called the Gospel and Race. And I overreacted during one of the classes as a classmate started playing Call of Duty during lecture. Call of Duty is a video game for those of you who don't know. And he started playing at the time when we were watching videos that were informing us and teaching us about the lynchings of 1920, the unjust murders of black Americans. Writing off my white male classmate as an indifferent racist, I didn't just tell him to his face that his behavior was distasteful and to shut it down, but I went on to email his pastor afterwards to tell him that his staff member was a disgrace to the pastorate. I know. It was overboard. I went from zero to 100 in an hour. That's because I assumed the worst in him, and I didn't give this leader a chance to explain himself. Was he wrong to play games during class? Yes, definitely. Was he a racist, though? Turns out he wasn't. Explaining himself and being brought to the table to reconcile, I learned that he was just a poor and tired seminary student with a colicky newborn at home. He had a wife who was battling postpartum depression, and he himself was also sleep-deprived because he was caring for his newborn baby and his wife. Furthermore, that day, he woke up early in the morning to go to his professional work, all the way until class started. And running from one point in the city to class, he had three hours of class to engage in. The poor man was just tired. He had nothing left in his gas tank. I assumed the worst in him, and I was very wrong. And for those of us under leadership, I'm not saying we can't hold our leaders to accountability. I'm not saying we can't question our leaders. What I'm saying is that we shouldn't be too quick to judge them. We shouldn't rush to assume the worst in them. Leaders, we shouldn't be too quick to judge those under us either. At Grace Toronto, we have a very robust process for dealing with conflict. If you want to learn more about that process, we have the membership class. I'm not going to get into it here in this sermon. Uh, I'm going to save that thunder for Jeff, but I encourage you to come and to learn. But in the meanwhile, let's not make the same mistake that I did. 
Let's not make the same mistake that the Corinthians did by jumping to conclusions and assuming the worst in one another. Up to this point, we have seen God's pattern for gospel leadership. This is God's pattern. As we move on to verse 24, we will see God's purpose for gospel leadership, and this is our, our, our second point, okay? Underneath the hood of gospel leadership is God's purpose to which all of us are called to. Let's read verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Paul's saying, I'm coming alongside you for your joy. If you read chapter 11, he talks about his sufferings. He's saying, I'm going to get beaten for your joy. I'll go to prison for your joy. I'll take 39 lashes on my back for your joy. I'll jump on a boat and get shipwrecked for your joy. I will die for your joy. I'll do it. I'll do it for your joy, your deep, everlasting, unshakable joy in Jesus. I'll do it if you'll just believe in him and give him your life. This is the calling of gospel leaders. And this is also the calling for all of us under gospel leaders. Verse, two, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. If you're in gospel leadership, your calling is to pursue people's joy in Jesus. If you're under gospel leadership, your calling is to pursue people like your leaders' joy in Jesus. And this is great. This is good news. This is good news because we all want to be happy, no? Don't we spend thousands of hours and thousands of dollars chasing things that we think will make us happy? Don't we jump from job to job, country to country, vacation to vacation, relationship to relationship, in hopes of obtaining happiness? Paul's saying, I know where to find happiness. I know where to find soul-satisfying, never-ending, never-failing happiness. It's in Jesus, he's saying. It's in Christ. Are you, are you tired of running the performance treadmill of life? There's rest in Jesus. You're tired of struggling with the same old sins over and over and over again like a broken record? There's freedom in Jesus. Are you tired of longing to belong at the deepest human level? You're longing to belong and to be known at the deepest level. You're fully known and truly loved in Jesus. That's what the gospel says. Paul's saying, you want joy, it's in Jesus. Skeptics, if you're hearing this and you want this, this is yours. In Christ, in the gospel, this is yours. This is for you if you would believe. Make Jesus your treasure. Tell him you want to experience this joy and then let him in. This is yours. If you're a Christian, you've tasted this joy. You've experienced this joy. You've drank this deep satisfaction that comes in Christ. And now, as agents of God's everlasting joy, we're invited into this glorious purpose. Leaders at Grace, 
elders, deacons, small group leaders, staff, remember why we do what we do. We're called to be agents of everlasting joy, concierges of Christ, ambassadors of grace. And I'm thankful at this church, many of you have been already doing this. To my colleagues on staff who gave up thriving professional careers and huge paychecks in order to work here in this church and model for us what this looks like, thank you. To the elders and deacons, you who volunteer hundreds of hours on top of your professional jobs in order to sit, pray, and serve us when we need you most, thank you for modeling for us what this looks like. Small group leaders, you who tirelessly show up and reach out to people who don't show up oftentimes or show up late most of the time and often criticize you for your decisions, thank you for showing us what this looks like, for endlessly pursuing us in patience and in faithfulness. Thank you. I know many of you are tired and feeling battered and bruised, and you're wondering if it's worth it all. With scarred backs, bruised bodies, and beaming smiles, I can see Paul and Jesus saying to you, yes, yes, it is worth it. Yes, amen, 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 it is worth it. You tired, feeling battered and bruised? Keep going, don't give up, because their joy is worth it. For those of us under leadership, and you're wondering how we, how we can encourage our leaders more and how, how can we work for their joy, Christopher Ashe in his book, The Book Your Pastor Wishes You Would Read But Is Too Embarrassed to Ask, gives us a couple of ideas. And like most of the staff at Grace Toronto, I want to be honest, church, we have done a very good job, I think, already. But Christopher Ashe gives us a little bit of extra ideas. The first one is prayer. Prayer. This past week, a small group leader messaged me to ask, Kingsley, what are some things that we can be praying for you and for the leaders in our church? How can we support you in this? I wept when I read that email. It meant so much to me because leadership oftentimes feel very lonely. And when leadership gets tough, there's nothing like knowing that there are people that want to be behind you, to support you, that gives you the energy to keep going. Prayer. The second one is show up. Show up. I know it sounds simple, but did you know that just showing up fills our sails with so much encouragement, so much power? It gives us deep motivation when you just show up. And if, I know at church, we already show up most of the time, but can we show up on time? How about that? Show up on time. When service starts at 11.15, let's come at 11.15 in the pews, not through the front doors. It brings us a lot of joy to be able to see that, hey, I'm here, I'm ready, I want to participate with you. Show up. Thirdly, exhort. This one was a good one. When was the last time you told your leader about how God used them to impact your life? I know it feels awkward, but I remember one time someone coming up to me and saying to me, Kingsley, this is how you impact my life, and I thought I had done nothing to impact their life. 
and it deepened my appreciation for the calling that God had given me, and it showed me that it was worth it. That person didn't tell me until 10 years later, by the way. So I had worked with them when I was a child uh, as a volunteer during a VBS, and then 10 years later when we reconnected, they were able to encourage me. It confirmed to me that my transition in ministry was worth it. Exhort. You never know when someone might need to hear that word. Prayer, show up, exhort. Lastly, partner. Partner with your leaders. It's one thing to to tell your leader how they can improve something. It's another to say to them, I want to come alongside you. How can I help you to improve? I know for Joe Choi, that's his love language. Joe Choi is our executive director. Don't just tell him, hey, here's something we need to fix. If you want to come with a suggestion, it will fill our sails with wind. Prayer, show up, exhort, partner. Not that we lord it over each other's faith, but we work with one another for each other's joy. Grace Toronto, we have done a good job, but we can still excel all the more. Studying the dynamics of gospel leadership today, we see not only God's gospel pattern for us, but God's gospel purpose for us. The question for us now is how will you respond? How will you respond? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for today, and as we consider these things and consider this word and what our role is in your purpose and how we are to pattern ourselves after your gospel calling, would you give us insight, would you give us clarity, and would you give us the power in Christ to be able to execute your glorious vision. We pray this for your namesake, for your glory, so that all the nations and all the peoples would say amen to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have some time for questions. Unfortunately, I forgot the phone in the front pew here, so excuse me while I step down. (laughs) Thanks, Hannah. Okay, so the first question that we have here, quite a few questions, all right. Just a clarification question. Can you explain why the Corinthians' claims against Paul were groundless? Thanks. So the Corinthians assumed that Paul was domineering, vacillating, and fickle in his actions. Paul clarifies with them that it wasn't the, that wasn't the case. He says that the reason why I changed my plans was to spare you. When he says spare you, uh, there's a... Um, the, the, the commentators believe what's happening there is Paul is sparing them from church discipline. And so the, the church thought that Paul had, had a lapse in integrity, but Paul's saying, no, out of love for you guys, what you're saying isn't true. The motive is actually completely different. It's out of love that I'm changing my plans. And so uh, it's not because he's being fickle, it's because he's acting in love. Second question, what are, measures, what are some measures Grace Toronto leadership is doing to ensure they are leaning on God's grace to treat complaints with love and truth. Um, Again, I will encourage you to come to our membership class for whoever asked this great question. Uh, We do go through that in quite a bit of detail. Uh, But uh, how do we treat the congregation's complaints? Well, I'll be honest with you, we don't dismiss you. Uh, We do take it very seriously, and uh, more often than not, for example, some of the, the issues that were brought forward was excess. This church is not accessible for the longest time because uh, people with uh, physical disabilities, for example, wouldn't be able to get upstairs to the second floor. How did the elders respond to that? They're working to build an elevator, and they assembled a team and started working through the projects and working with the congregants to get through things like that. Uh, When it came to issues of race, 
Grace Toronto and the elders wonderfully, I think, uh, got together and uh, gathered all the people in the church who had experiences with issues of race, and they listened. They didn't try to defend, but they listened. And they bore the emotions, the painful emotions. I've seen our elders cry through the pain as they had people share about some of the dark and deep things that they had experienced in the church. And the elders didn't say what you thought was unacceptable or unreal. No, they took it. They listened. They considered. And they worked with these other folks to say, hey, how can we do better? And so there's a a thousand ways that Grace Toronto does it. I encourage you, though, however, to please come to the membership class to to work through the the actual logical flow steps and the the flow chart of how we do it at our church. I'll take uh, this as our last question, uh, and then the rest I'll answer here um, by hand afterwards. There we go. Can you give more practical examples of how a person can act this out? I'm not sure what they're referring to, probably the pattern, especially when many of us are leaders working in secular contexts dominated by culture's view of power where the biblical way may be viewed as weakness to non-Christians. Okay, so I'm assuming that they're talking about the power of gospel leadership, um, sorry, the pattern of gospel leadership. So how can we give more practical examples of how to person access? Okay, Uh, a good example is this. Uh, When we imitate Jesus, there's a certain beauty there's a certain beauty to Jesus' person. This is why when you read the Bible, flocks of people chased after him and came to him. He was gracious, he was kind, he was loving. When people spat on him on the cross, when people mocked him on the cross, when they crucified him on the cross, how did Jesus respond? Did he say, forget you all? No, he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He extends grace to them. And so you might be in a place where your colleagues or even your leaders might be mistreating you. I'm not saying that you, that you, you take their unjust treatment, but instead of reaming them out and responding ag- with aggression with aggression, try responding with grace maybe. You can call them out and say, hey, I, don't, I had a colleague say that to me once at the hospital before. They were, they were inappropriately responding to me and I said to them, hey, I understand you're frustrated. I understand you're upset at me right now. But can we talk like, like civil people here? I want to love you and I want to serve you well and I want to understand you well. But can, you, can we cool it down and can we talk at a, at, a reasonable, at a reasonable level? You didn't get angry at him. That person was like, what? <laughs> and they were able to realize that they were overreacting now. Disarming their aggression with grace with honest grace, honest kindness, it opened doors for reconciliation. This is just one example. If you have more questions, please do email me. My email is kingsley at gracetoronto.ca. I would love to respond to them accordingly. And uh, for the rest of you who messaged and sent messages here, thank you. I will get to them shortly. But at this time, I think it's appropriate for Dan to lead us to the next part of our service.